Welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch as we examine the ever-changing relationship between the UK and China. Our aim is fairly simple, to learn more about the decision makers, ideas, threats and opportunities that underpin this bilateral, and to inject some complexity back into the discussion. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent happening, what's going on with some experts, and look at the parliamentary output and field some questions from you. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Sam. Uh, fresh off our first of what hopes to be many private Beijing to Britain dinners. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. Good food, good people, interesting conversations. Absolutely. So maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, but um, it's been an absolute manic pace for the last th- three or four weeks with UK-China announcements. But we, we seem to have slowed down slightly, and that's because we're heading into uh, party conference season. All the major parties are hosting conferences. We've seen the Lib Dems in at the Down in Bournemouth. The Conservatives will be up in Manchester and the Labour in, in Liverpool. So um, is there anything we should be specifically looking out for from the party conferences in relation to China? I don't think anything specific at this stage. The Lib Dems will say, the Liberal Democrats, that is, will have basically had their conference and it's sort of wrapped up. Labour's conference comes after the Conservative conference. And there are some sort of sideline panels that will be discussing the Indo-Pacific and perhaps touching on China too. But I can't see a huge deviation from the Conservative approach or the government approach to China right now from the Labour side. So I, I, you know, I suspect both of them actually will have not a huge amount of new things to say on China, although I will be on a panel on Monday with the Foreign Secretary discussing China. So I'll be able to let you know uh, when I debrief you after that, Steve. No, that's great. And I think we're looking forward to that panel and what, what will be said. So the other big announcement that came out of the UK was Sunak's delayal of Britain's climate commitments. Net zero for 2030 rolls back a ban on petrol vehicles till 2035. From my perspective, uh, and I, I look, I, I don't want to comment specifically on, on the goals and the ambitions, but from a business perspective, it certainly sort of potentially wanes confidence, sort of flip-flopping policy. And that's bad for business when it, when it comes to investment and confidence. But the fact of the matter is, we just did not have the EV infrastructure to facilitate what was actually the ambitions that were taking place. And the EV might not have been possible. And again, once once again, China debate rears its head. Essentially, it's unfair competition when it comes to, to EVs. The Chinese have wholesale state support for EVs and, and actually could flood the market with, with cheaper cars is, is, is one of the concerns. And this is sort of heavily subsidized Chinese imports. So again, another question for you, Sam, is there a strategy when it comes to the UK on electrical vehicles? Mm, if you read the parliamentary output and the concerns around EV vehicles, uh, they're exactly what you just raised there. Beyond the infrastructure point, there is the huge concern that China will flood the British market with cheap vehicles. And people touch on the data side of it and the security side of it too, you know. To simplify it down to its most tabloid headline type thing, it's, you know, could Beijing switch the off button, uh, turn the off button and, and switch all the cars off type thing like that, which masks a wider concern around security and around, as you say, sort of subsidizing the market back at home and then exporting it here. Now, does the UK have a strategy? Not, not that I've seen that it's a coherent one. And if they do certainly have a strategy, then it, it's not well known to parliamentarians because they consistently ask questions about what, sort of what the hell is going on. So... Not, not entirely sure. Yeah, I think that's very fair. One of the um, points we were just discussing before the podcast went live, Sam, was actually how many times you've actually taken your driving test? That 
uh, you'll have to get out of me with a freedom of information request, Steve. I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. Let me okay. let me say let me just conclude by saying I'm not past it yet, but you know that's <laughs> we all Is have it our in battles. excess of two. <laughs> As I said the other day, it's it's between two and two hundred. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So let's move away from the UK and to China. There was a visit from high-level UK universities out to Beijing. Sam, can you just tell me a little bit about what happened and who went? Yeah, of course. So this was a really interesting thing we covered in the briefing last week. It got almost no pickup, actually got no pickup here in the UK at all, despite the scrutiny of British universities and China right now. But effectively last week, 20 or so British universities headed to Beijing and Shanghai as part of the UK higher education mission to China 2023, which is a pretty catchy title. Um, It was organized by the British Council, UKRI, China's Ministry for Education and Universities UK International. And effectively, what they were trying to do was just, you know, uh, reestablish connections post post pandemic. This is the, the biggest uh, group of universities to go since 2019. And so was there any outcome specifically? Were we looking for something to happen or just reestablish connections? I think, well, it's hard to tell because the details are really scant. So it's not entirely clear whether there was a series of objectives they were looking to tick off or whether it was just a reestablishing the communications type, type thing. They obviously visited a number of places, Shanghai, et cetera, et cetera, met with different Chinese universities, 44 of them actually. But it's not entirely clear if this was meant to be a mission that had clear objectives in that sense or whether it was just a case of reestablishing partnerships and connections. Okay, I think a few things to discuss from our European neighbours. Last week, the European Chamber of Commerce in China released their white paper, which essentially looks at the business environment and market access issues. I would say it was not as punchy and bullish as the last year, but that was also because of the last year was at the height of zero COVID and the disillusional policy on that. But this this year, they focused quite heavily on the, on the market and the business environment, essentially saying that historically, China was predictable and a reliable market. Now the perception has dramatically eroded European companies following COVID-19 pandemic, the systemic issues around the economy and regulation challenges are sort of beginning a fatigue in the China market. And again, a point I tried to make last week, which was around foreign nationals in China, one of the main issues is attracting and retaining foreign talent. And it's it's almost non-existent and it's such a problematic issue for, for foreign businesses. The other bit of news from the Europeans is there was a high-level economic and trade dialogue which looked to address the trade deficit uh, between the EU and China, which is absolutely enormous. And also China and the EU agreed export controls and mechanisms to ease some of the, the trade tensions. But this is also just a willingness to engage between Brussels and Beijing rather than drifting apart, which again, I think is interesting. So just to wrap that all up a bit, Sam, from the UK perspective, we're still in the orbit of James Cleverley's visit. And this largely, in my opinion, seemed a bit of a tick box exercise around the word engagement. I genuinely don't really know what came out of it, apart from positive rhetoric and wording. But on the European side, I do actually feel there was some, some major outcomes specifically around uh, trying to ease some of the trade deficit. So if we were to look at sort of the two approaches between the EU and the UK, is there anything that you would like to see adopted from the UK about how the EU challenges and deals with China? I I think actually what I would say as an observer from the outside is there is a confidence to the EU's approach, engagement and challenging of China that we just don't have in the UK right now. So, you know, you reference cleverly visit to China, obviously an important thing to do. But the key problem we have here is that the government is unable to communicate to Westminster 
what its mission objectives are, why it's doing these things. And also, it seems like uh, everything it does on the defensive side is completely reactive. So to give you one example that's current this week, yesterday was the thousandth day that Jimmy Lai, the Hong Kong media mogul and British citizen, has spent in jail in Hong Kong, right? And although we did eventually get a statement via a tweet from the Indo-Pacific minister, and a number of MPs tweeted about it too, there has yet to be a public call from the top of the government here for Jimmy Lai to be released, which is it's just quite mind-blowing when you look at what our allies are doing in America, even our European partners too. That speaks to a wider issue, which is that because they haven't addressed many of the concerns that Westminster and parliamentarians level at them around the UK's engagement with China, when they actually try and engage with China, which every country should be doing anyway, it just looks like they're doing it to make money and to increase trade and put aside the human rights concerns and security concerns. And, you know, this taps into a wider issue, which is that both sides tend to caricature how the other one is, is behaving and doing these things. So to wrap that back into your question, what I'd like to see, I would like to see the UK government have more confidence in its place in the world and where it fits into that, you know, EU, US, China uh, matrix, as it were. But it also needs to have much more uh, forthright conversations with its MP, MPs, backbench business people, and not hide behind the veneer of this ambiguity around its potential strategy. Hmm. That's a great point. Well, look, we are both extremely excited, actually, about this uh, this week's guest, who is none other than Trey McCarver. Trey is the co-founder of Trivium China, which is a consultancy that, in simple terms, explains China to governments, businesses, NGOs, people like yourself and I, Steve, who sit on the outside now. Uh, they have a, a big presence in China, and their job is to explain everything from elite politics through to policy. So we were really, really fortunate to sit down with Trey for a long segment this week. So Trey, thanks for joining us. This is maybe a bit of a broad one to start with, but there are so many misconceptions around how the Chinese political system actually works. And so I, I wonder if we could start with you briefly explaining how does the system actually work and what can we sort of see from the outside? Yeah, well, thanks. First of all, Sam, just just and Steve, just want to say like very excited to to be here. Love the podcast, love the newsletter, and really appreciate both of you trying to kind of create a more informed debate about China here in the UK. I think it's something that's that's desperately needed, uh, and so I'm I'm really excited to be invited on and and hope that I can contribute in some small way. So I I think you know to your question about how how China works and kind of misconceptions about the political system. I mean, I, I'm not sure how many misconceptions there are. I think there's just a lot of ignorance about how China works. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I think it works a, a lot like uh, similar uh, political systems. And so, you know, at Trivium, we're headquartered in Beijing, office in Shanghai, and our whole kind of raison d'etre, our mission is to help you know, companies, governments, investors to understand how China works and what is going on there. So, you know, we spend all day, every day trying to understand how it works. And I think at the end of the day, you know, politicians there are motivated by much the same thing that, that politicians are motivated by here and in other countries. I mean, they're basically trying to govern their country with good governance outcomes that will please the people and keep the, you know, the dominant party in power. And so, you know, when we could, we can get into that later about like what that means or what the political program is or what the overall goals are, but it's much like it is in other places. It's basically to keep the country safe and to make it prosper. 
And so I think, you know, that is what occupies the minds of Chinese leaders on a day-to-day basis. I guess, you know, if I if there is one misconception um, or, or something that perhaps is worth pointing out to a foreign audience is that, you know, we read so much about China or think about China in the context of foreign relations, in the context of the, you know, China-UK relationship or China's relations with the rest of the world. But China, much like the UK, much like other countries, you know, when Xi Jinping wakes up in the morning, the first thing he thinks about is not how are UK-China relations, how are China's relationships, you know, with the world. He thinks about, you know, the floods going on in the Northeast, the high unemployment rates, and all of the domestic issues that he has to solve. So I think I think that's a good kind of context or something uh, that people need to know when they're trying to understand China and think about it, that it is, like other places, a place that is primarily focused on domestic politics and on, on making the country kind of run well, be more prosperous and be safe. Just before Steve jumps in, Trey, can I just uh, sort of clarify again, because although many of our listeners will have a far uh, deeper knowledge base than I do, which is unsurprising, I, I just wonder if you could explain what this sort of a Chinese equivalent of the cabinet of the cabinet is or, or the sort of like if there's a parliament and stuff like that, just so we can set the scene in, in that regard. Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, China is famously a one party state. Uh, so, you know, really everything kind of starts and ends with the Chinese Communist Party. And it, it gets it gets complicated, probably too complicated for this podcast to get into all the different kind of organs and, and organizations of the party state. But I think the most important thing to understand is that the party itself is the most important organization in China. And that's that's even more the case under Xi Jinping, who has really worked to strengthen party control over the institutions of state. And so that party itself has a, a seven-member Politburo Standing Committee, which are the seven most important men in the country. We don't really know exactly how the Politburo Standing Committee works, but um, from what we do know, we think it meets about once a week, um, and they kind of discuss major issues. Then underneath them is, is the wider Politburo, which is about 25 people, and they meet once a month uh, to kind of discuss major issues. And if you go back to those seven people on the Politburo Standing Committee, they all represent different parts of the party state. So you have Xi Jinping, who's the president and the commander in chief. He's really in charge of kind of obviously foreign affairs, the military and kind of national strategy. Mm -hmm. Then you have the premier who's in charge of the government. He really you know, looks over um, and, and runs the show on economic policy. You have the head of the legislature. You have the head of a political advisory body, which, you know, is something kind of akin to, to the House of Lords. It doesn't actually have legislative um, authority, but it does have a kind of um, can input into the process. Uh, and then you have the head of the party itself, like running the day to day operations of the party. You have the head of the party's disciplinary commission. And then you have another an executive vice premier, somebody else from the government. But so. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but you basically have the major kind of institutions of state are represented by by people and they meet on a weekly basis to kind of, you know, decide the fate of the country. No, no, I think that's that's really, really helpful, um, Trey. And I think that's actually one of the misconceptions is people rise to power purely on 
just who you know. So last year we saw, or we ushered in the historic third term of Xi, obviously no surprise to anyone. And that was very much around a consolidation of power and control. And I suppose that is that the case that it's anyone who is now connected to Xi, related to Xi, is going to rise to power and therefore has just Xi surrounded himself with yes men. Obviously not women because there's, there's no women in, in, in positions of power in China. Yeah, I mean, there are no women on the Politburo Standing Committee, and uh, there's um, and there are no women on the Politburo now either, um, which is the first time in a while um, that that has happened. But to, to answer your question, so if you know Xi Jinping, it's not a bad thing. So you know, many of those seven people at that top table, and you know, many of the twenty-five sitting at that that larger Politburo are close to Xi Jinping, and I would say do owe their rise to Xi Jinping. But I think it's important to note that Xi Jinping has not appointed yes-men, and that, you know, I think Xi clearly cares about his own power, but he also actually really cares about, about doing a good job. And so at the same time that it is it has been more useful to be close to Xi Jinping, it's also become more useful or you've had a better chance of being promoted if you've proven capable at your job. And particularly if you actually have experience in kind of the hard sciences or the technological upgrading that's really, you know, the number one strategic imperative for China at this moment. So one of the things, I think it's one of the the major questions that we've been looking at over the past year as we've had this political transition happen and we've had a lot of new people ascend to prominent positions within the party, we've been trying to figure out, you know, what that means for policymaking, how much, you know, these people are going to be given authority by Xi to make decisions on their own, how much they might be yes men, because I think that is one of the biggest risks for China going forward is that you have something kind of like the the Putinization of China, where the information environment of the leader you know, becomes really degrades and that he's only hearing from from a small amount of people who are telling him what he wants to hear. And so far, our indications are that um, Xi Jinping has put these people in power because he trusts them. And actually, because he trusts them, he is giving them more authority, more leeway to kind of do what they want in their respective areas of responsibility. So I think the most important example here is the premier. So this this guy is Li Qiang. He actually was Xi Jinping's chief of staff about 20 years ago when she was a provincial party secretary. He was made the premier actually over the objections of a lot of people in the party. And he has been given so far, it seems an incredible amount of latitude to actually pursue his own economic agenda. He came out on his first day as, as premier and said, you know what, I, I'm a private sector guy. I've worked with the private sector for decades. I understand their concerns. And I'm going to be a, a premier that promotes the private sector. Three months later, we have the most ambitious private sector support policy that we've seen in the history of PRC, of the PRC. And so I, I could actually give you 10 other examples of ways that I think Li Chang has been allowed to kind of put his stamp on policy in a way that his predecessor who was not a Xi Jinping guy, was not allowed to do. So, yeah, I, I think what we've seen so far is actually that the kind of elevation of a bunch of uh, people that she trusts actually means that she is delegating more power 
uh, in his third term. So Trey, I understand that, as you say, he's elevating people he trusts. And I guess conversely then, and, and how many people in Westminster, if they do follow Chinese elite politics, will have heard about Chinese elite politics recently is, is, is the dif- sort of disappearance of the defense minister last week. And then obviously a couple of months ago, the foreign minister too. What, what's What's going on here? What's happening? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's been it's been a pretty crazy couple months in Chinese politics. And, you know, I hate to disappoint you and, and all of the listeners, but, you know, ultimately, I don't have the answer. I haven't I haven't talked to anybody who has the answer. And, and we may very well never know the actual answer of what's going on. Uh, yeah. But I think, you know, I mean, what we have heard af- uh, appears pretty credible. So I think, you know, the foreign minister had an affair with with a woman when he was um, uh, ambassador to the United States. That woman ended up having a child by him in the United States, which means that that child very well could be a U.S. citizen. And I think for, you know, the Chinese uh, state, that is an unacceptable security risk um, because he is now seen, you know, if he has a, a U.S. child, then the U.S. is seen to have, you know, too much potential leverage over him. And so I think when that indiscretion came to light, he was booted from his post. When it comes to the defense minister, we don't have quite as much clarity on what's happened, but it seems pretty clear that it's related to corruption. A few weeks before the defense minister disappeared, uh, some other very senior officials in the um, in the army were removed from their posts. Clearly has to do with corruption. My best guess is that in the course of their investigation of those other top officials, they basically found something out about the defense minister as well. And so these investigations, they 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 can sometimes take on a life of their own. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think we have probably two discrete events, each with their own causes um, that have led to the ousting of, of top officials in China. But I mean, I guess the question that, that I receive most common or uh, most frequently in relation to um, the removal of the foreign minister and the defense minister is, you know, does this in some way undermine Xi Jinping since these people were promoted under Xi Jinping? Mm. And I mean, my answer is a is a pretty uh, forceful no, it does not. You know, I, I think the the... The comparison I always use to help people understand it is to look at somebody like Donald Trump. And so, you know, um, in in the first month of Donald Trump's presidency, his national security advisor was removed for sharing classified information with the Russians. Uh, he was also promoting a scandal, a, a conspiracy theory that said that Hillary Clinton and other top Democrats were running a pedophilia ring. He was, you know, I mean, frankly, he was beyond the pale. And so for people that did not like Donald Trump, they said, well, this is clearly proof that this guy is, you know, has poor judgment and should not be running the country. For people that supported Donald Trump, it didn't matter. You know, and they said, oh, yeah, he made a mistake. Let's move on. And basically the same thing is happening in China. So, you know, there are people in, in China who don't like Xi Jinping and do not like where he's taking the country. And for those people you know, the indiscretions of the foreign minister and the corruption of the defense minister are further proof that Xi Jinping is a bad leader and has poor judgment. For those that support Xi Jinping, this is, you know, this is not a story. Let's move on. 
you know, and, and I think she is a very savvy political actor. He'll probably use this to advance to his advantage to say in particular with the foreign minister who was very much kind of fast tracked up the ladder of the communist party because of Xi Jinping. I think she will say, look, you know, I, I hold everybody to a high standard. And just because, you know, you're close to me doesn't mean that you can go around breaking the rules. And I think that will actually, you know, serve to kind of bolster Xi's position within the party or his reputation as somebody, you know, who holds people to a high standard. Mm. It, it's interesting to hear you reiterate Xi's main focus has been around corruption and the corruption clampdown. Um, this actually impacted me firsthand because my favorite bar back in Beijing called The Den uh, was owned by the military and that had to close down. So well done. <laughs> That's the money coming through now, Steve, the representative money. <laughs> I think the fascination for so many people around this story, and indeed the Chinese system is bec- and these disappearing ministers, is it's just so challenging to actually understand what's happening. Clearly, as you mentioned, lots of decisions are behind closed doors. They take place on a, on a weekly basis, maybe, or maybe a monthly basis. We're still not sure. But due to this lack of transparency, which is the complete opposite to the UK, I will add, it's now becoming maybe a slightly bigger concern of just transparency in general in China. You know, should we have a deeper concern around the policy and law implementations with government officials, you know, essentially, you know, moving out of power, maybe without public justification. So... To look at this from another relationship, which is business, can businesses risk investing in China right now? Or do you think that opaqueness, which was previously conceived as an opportunity, could now just be conceived as a risk? So I definitely think it's a risk. Um, I mean, it's kind of unequivocally a risk. Um, I mean, I, I will say that China's always been opaque. It has become more opaque under Xi Jinping. And that does mean that that companies are more at risk um, for things like policy volatility. I think, you know, more broadly, it's 2023 is, is a really interesting year for me. You know, our job is to help companies and investors kind of navigate China um, and succeed there. And I will definitely tell you that the question that every, you know, UK business, multinational business in China or thinking about being in China is asking itself is, is China worth it? Um, and that's because unquestionably, the risk adjusted returns on being in China have gone down. That is partly a, a macroeconomic story. So China is just, you know, it doesn't grow as fast as it did even five years ago, certainly not 10 or, or 20 years ago. And at the same time, there are more risks around around the kind of opacity of the policy environment, but more importantly, more risks stemming from home countries, right? I mean, you you it's you can't go a week without kind of a new kind of talk about investment restrictions from the US or the EU or the UK um, or other things that really complicate the the operations of foreign business. So the risks have gone up. At the same time, China remains the second largest economy in the world. And you know, for all the talk of kind of de-risking right now, I talk to companies all the time. There, there's no such, there's no alternative to China. You can't just kind of de-risk because China is so central to global trade and global manufacturing and global supply chains that even if you can move your operations to Southeast Asia or to Eastern Europe or to Latin America, which often you cannot because they do not have the same infrastructure, they do not have the same workforce. Mm. 
even if you can do that, it doesn't mean that you're not still tied to China because you unquestionably are going to have suppliers or goods that are coming from China. And so, you know, for companies, the, the question is not really, you know, should we be in China or not? It's really how do we navigate a China? How do we adjust our strategy for a China where returns are lower and the risks are higher? So I think that that's really, you know, it is for companies, it's becoming more difficult, but it 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 just means that they have to adjust the way that they're operating, not that they just pull out entirely. And Trey, if I could just wrap it up by referring to something or referencing something you, you said earlier on. So you said that she doesn't wake up and think about the UK-China bilateral, which is, I would say, upsetting to hear, uh, obviously, given that that's exactly what I do every morning, but whatever, that's fine. Um, so more, more... Maybe he hasn't got on a podcast yet. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. I guess the question I have is, how often do you see evidence of the sort of Chinese elite politics thinking about the UK full stop? Because what I often hear, and you know, again, this is my ignorance, is that when the UK is thought about, it's thought about as in, in relation to the US. Is there really sort of strategic thinking going on at the top of the Chinese system when it comes to the UK-China bilateral? Yeah, um, great question. So we actually... Um, we track China's diplomatic engagements uh, with other countries, uh, and we've been doing this. Uh, we've been doing this since the, since Xi Jinping came to power. So, without getting into the details, we basically have a, a quantitative way of kind of measuring how much what we call diplomatic capital China is spending on different countries. And the sad truth is that they don't spend a lot of capital on the UK. So, I think you know the UK, if you look at the past ten years, ends up in the mid thirties, uh, on the kind of league tables. Whereas, you know, number one, kind of in a dead heat are Russia and the United States, but you know, the real kind of UK comparator countries are, are France and Germany. And I think they're at four and six. Hmm. And, you know, I think this is, it's a reflection. I think a lot of it is frankly a reflection of Brexit. So the, the UK became a lot less important when it didn't have a say in the EU. So previously, you know, the China was very focused on the UK because they thought that the UK could be, you know, kind of a moderating voice with EU policy. But I think, you know, o- overall, yeah, the the UK has, I, I think, is has become less of a priority for China than than it used to be. That is. Uh... We'll just cut that from the podcast. We'll just have to cut that one. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, not not the answer we were looking for. You know, we're we're all in London and we're all invested in in this relationship. And you know, I mean, I um, but I, that's that's kind of the sad reality of it at the moment. Yeah. Well, that, that's really fascinating, and we'll include a link to Trivium uh, in the podcast notes. Definitely, definitely, if you're a UK company in this space, worth getting in contact with Trey. Trey, thank you so much for your time. That was absolutely uh, excellent. Yeah, my pleasure, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, as, as mentioned, that was really fascinating, Sam, and I think goes a long way just to, to, to busting some myths when it comes to uh, what's actually happening around the political system in China um, and just giving us a bit more of a, an in-depth, nuanced perspective around Xi's leadership and the, the people surrounding him. So really fascinating from, from, from my perspective. Um, 
I mean, it's one of the things that we spoke about before, Steve, is that you can open up the Sunday Times here and see what everyone was doing every minute of the day, the entire week on a Sunday in, in Downing Street. Whereas we look at the, the Chinese system and I couldn't tell you anything about it at all, basically. It's completely opaque. So it's always fantastic to have someone who can bring that level of clarity to how things work within the system. But look, let's wrap it up there. Steve, I will see you at Conservative Party Conference on Monday. I'm looking forward I'm to looking it. I'm looking forward to your panel. <laughs> Thank you very much. Easy questions only, please. And uh, <laughs> look, we'll um, we'll be recording next week. So take care and I'll speak to you then.